And welcome back to Axioms of Liberty podcast, where we dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers of our era to help you build a better foundation to understand your world. And today we're going to continue with the Voluntarist Handbook, starting with Chapter 3. And Chapter 3 is titled, Coercivists and Voluntarists, by Donald J. Bordeaux, Ph.D., at the Foundation for Economic Education. Categorizing a political position according to some simple left-right scale of values leaves something to be desired. Political views cover such a wide variety of issues that it's impossible to describe adequately any one person merely by identifying where he sits on a lone horizontal line. Use of the single left-right scale makes impossible a satisfactory description of libertarian and classical liberal attitudes towards government. Libertarians oppose not only government direction of economic affairs, but also government meddling in the personal lives of peaceful people. Does this opposition make libertarians rightists because they promote free enterprise, or leftists because they oppose government meddling in people's private affairs? As a communications tool, the left-right distinction suffers acute anemia. Nevertheless, despite widespread dissatisfaction with the familiar left-right liberal conservative lingo, such use continues. One reason for its durability is convenience. Never mind that all important nuances are ignored when describing someone as being, say, to the right of Richard Nixon or to the left of Lyndon Johnson. The description takes only seconds and doesn't tax the attention of nightly news audiences. Therefore, no practical good is done by lamenting the mass media's insistence on using a one-dimensional tool for describing political views. A better strategy for helping to improve political discussions is to devise a set of more descriptive terms. There is so much to be said for a suggestion offered by Professor Richard Gamble, who teaches history at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Gamble proposes that instead of describing someone as either left or right, or liberal or conservative, we describe him as either a centralist or a decentralist. This centralist-decentralist language would be a vast improvement over the muddled left-right language. Unfortunately, centralist-decentralist language contains its own potential confusion. Namely, decentralist might be taken to mean someone who is indifferent to what Clint Bollock calls grassroots tyranny. Is there an even better set of labels for one-dimensional political spectrum? I think so. And I think we should call it Coercivist, voluntarist. At one end of this spectrum are the coercivists. Coercivists believe that all order in society must be consciously designed and implemented by a sovereign government power. Coercivists cannot fathom how individuals without mandates from above can ever pattern their actions in a way that is not only orderly, but also peaceful and productive. For the coercivists, direction by sovereign government is a necessary for the creation of social order as the meticulous craftsmanship of a watchmaker is necessary for the creation 
of a watch. At the end of the spectrum are the voluntarists. Voluntarists understand two important facts about society that coercivists miss. First, voluntarists understand that social order is inevitable without coercive direction from the state as long as the basic rules of private property and voluntary contracting are respected. This inevitability of social order when such rules are observed is the great lesson taught by Adam Smith, Ludwig von Mises, and F. A. Hayek, and all of the truly great economists through the ages. Second, voluntarists understand that coercive social engineering by government, far from promoting social harmony, is fated to ruin existing social order. Voluntarists grasp the truth that genuine and productive social order is possible only when each person is free to pursue his own goals in his own way constrained by no political power. Coercive political power is the enemy of social order because it is unavoidably arbitrary, bestowing favors for reasons wholly unrelated to the values the recipients provide to their fellow human beings. And even if by some miracle the exercise of political power could be shorn of its arbitrariness, it can never escape being an exercise conducted in gross ignorance. It is a simple fantasy to imagine that all the immense and detailed knowledge necessary for the successful central direction of human affairs can ever be possessed by government. Society emerges from the cooperation of hundreds of millions of people, each acting on the basis of his own unique knowledge of individual wants, talents, occupations, and circumstances. No bureaucrat can know enough about software design to outperform Bill Gates, or enough about retailing to successfully second-guess the folks at Walmart, or enough about any of the millions of different industries to outdo people who are highly specialized in their various trades. The coercivist voluntarist vocabulary is superior to the left, right, or liberal conservative vocabulary at distinguishing liberty's friends from its foes. Support for high taxes and intrusive government commercial regulation is a liberal trait. A supporter of high taxes and regulation is also, however, properly labeled as a coercivist. But note, no less of a coercivist is the conservative who applauds government regulation of what adults voluntarily read view, or even ingest. Both parties believe that social order will deteriorate into chaos unless government coercion overrides the myriad private choices made by individuals. Voluntarists are typically accused of endorsing complete freedom of each individual from all restraints. This accusation is nonsense. While they oppose heavy reliance upon coercively imposed restraints. Sensible voluntarists do not oppose restraints per se. Voluntarists, in contrast to coercivists, recognize that superior restraints on individual behavior emerge decentrally and peaceably. Parents restrain their children. Neighbors use both formal and informal means to restrain each other from unneighborly behaviors.
The ability of buyers to choose where to spend their money restrains businesses from abusing customers. A free society is chock full of decentrally and non-coercively imposed restraints. Indeed, it is the voluntary origins of such restraints that make them more trustworthy than coercively imposed restraints. A voluntary restraint grows decentrally from the give and take of everyday life and is sensitive to all the costs and benefits of both the restraint itself and of the restrained behavior. But a coercive restraint too often is the product not of that give and take of all affected parties, but instead of political deals. And political deals are notoriously biased towards the wishes of the politically well-organized while ignoring the wishes of those unable to form effective political coalitions. What's more, members of the political class often free themselves from the very restraints they foist upon others. Coercively imposed restraints are not social restraints at all. Rather, they are arbitrary commands issued by the politically privileged. The true voluntarist fears nothing as much as he fears coercive power, whether exercised by those on the left or the right. That was a nice little short article. Really good. I like that framing of coercivists and voluntarists because you can still, you know, try to plot, you know, what more along the lines less deals with, you know, well, what do you believe in? Do you believe in allowing individuals to choose for themselves? Or do you believe somebody else should make a law to, to force them, to mandate them to do what is right? And I feel like that's a better dichotomy, a better uh, binary, you know, side-by-side -side comparison of what type of things you believe in versus the liberal, classical, conservative nonsense that we have, left-right arguments that you have on these things because you have all these, you know, righties that have some leftist tendencies and vice versa, some lefties that have some rightist tendencies in between the two. It's kind of nonsensical. And I feel like those people that believe in that entire paradigm or system altogether fall into just the course of his camp altogether because both of them believe that they should have the power to make the laws to force other people to do the things that they want to do. And is that not coercivist? And I feel like that's a better way to frame the idea of what your beliefs, you know, portray out into the world. So that was chapter three. And now we're on to chapter four. Three Thought Experiments by Jason Brennan, Ph.D. of Political Philosophy and Introduction, 2016. Imagine virtuous Vanny cares deeply about others and is willing to do whatever it takes to save lives. She believes that processed sugar is a scourge killing Americans. So one day she packs a pistol, invades the local 7-Eleven, and declares, This here gun says you can't sell big gulps anymore. Principled Peter believes that you don't give enough money to charity. You're living high while people die. One day he sends you an email. 
FYI. I hacked into your bank account. I transferred a third of it to poor single moms. Decent Danny thinks you should buy American rather than German cars. After all, your fellow citizens provide you with roads, school, and police. You owe them some business. He finds you shopping at a foreign dealer, pulls out a taser, and says, You know what? I'll let you buy that BMW, but only if you first pay me $3,000. You probably regard Vanny, Peter, and Danny as criminals. How dare they treat you like that? You'd want the police to arrest them. But there's a puzzle here. While the police would indeed arrest Vanny, Peter, and Danny, they're also happy to help other people, bureaucrats in Washington, Berlin, or Ottawa, do the same things Vanny, Peter, and Danny want to do. So this set of examples suggests a few questions. What if anything explains why it's wrong for Peter to take a third of your income, but not wrong for your government tax office to do so? What if anything justifies the Food and Drug Administration in determining what you can and can't eat, but forbids Vanny from doing so? In general, governments claim the rights to do things ordinary people may not do. What if anything justifies that? This is just one of the central questions in political philosophy. And that's another short little one. I definitely like how it just breaks down simply the things that government agencies do to everyday people and puts it into a concept of whatever institution that you're defending or needs to exist. Just break it down into simple terms of just you you are the person that that agency embodies and you are doing to other individuals what that person is doing. And when you break it down that simple into the most first principled of terms, you realize the absurdity of the idea that there is an agency out there that allows such things and that we as individuals allow those type of things to occur. I think it's a very good way of doing things. And since that one's so short, let's just see what the next one is. The next one is actually pretty long. That one actually, yeah, that one's... The next chapter's pretty long, so we're just going to cut that one short. Just a nice little short little read today. Chapter 5 is pretty long, so got got a meet up here in about an hour or so. Just wanted to get something out with you guys, give you guys something to listen to, because I know that I thoroughly enjoy when I have things to listen to to learn. And maybe, you know, some of these can guys give you guys some better ideas on how to think about things. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, Joel, I did see your post about the anarchy on, I think it was your Substack. I'll definitely give it a look. I'll check it out and see if it's definitely something that I'm actually looking for. I appreciate it. Thanks.